Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Research has shown that if you are able to talk about race or disability or whatever identities people might have that are outside of power, and you're able to have an open, caring, affirmative conversation about people's differences, people feel more seen. Welcome back to What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Give Butter. Today, I'm interviewing Crystal Cherry and Renee Rubin-Ross. Crystal and Renee are a board consultant team who tackle the pervasive racism and white supremacy culture within nonprofits and push for diversity and equity, particularly on boards of directors. They often navigate resistance from board members uncomfortable with discussing white supremacy culture and biases. However, through patience and open dialogue, they create space for transformative shifts in mindsets and behaviors. Crystal and Renee emphasize the importance of transparency and personal reflection within organizations, and on this episode, they talk about their approach that encourages boards to recognize their individual and collective responsibilities in creating diverse and inclusive environments. I know that creating more diversity, equity, and inclusion on our boards is something so many of you are thinking about right now. And in this conversation, we talk about a variety of entry points for organizations big and small. So let's dive in so you can learn more from Crystal and Renee. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Crystal Cherry and Renee Rubin Ross. Welcome, both of you, to What the Fundraising. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Let's start with just some introductions. Crystal, do you want to kick us off and tell everyone a little bit about you? Absolutely. Thank you, Mallory. My name is Crystal Cherry, and I am a board consultant. The name of my firm is The Board Pro. I currently live in Atlanta, but I work with nonprofits all across the country to help them build better boards. In the last couple of years, I've been doing some work in the DEI space and ran into someone who has become a dear friend, a colleague and a partner in this work, Dr. Renee Rubin-Ross. And so in the last couple of years, we've been working together to build a DEI experience that we're proud of, that we have shared with several clients that we have worked with together. So we're here today to talk about that. Awesome. And Renee, tell everyone a little bit about you. Thanks, Mallory and Crystal. Hi, Dr. Renee Rubin-Ross. I use she, her pronouns, identify as a white person. My work is strategic planning facilitation based in Northern California and beyond. I also run the Cal State East Bay Nonprofit Management Certificate Program. People are now coming from pretty far and near because the program's online. And Meeting our students and really hearing about their questions, their commitment to their communities and to their communities thriving and teaching board development and having people say to me, why are boards this way? 
Why is why are board composition statistics in the dismal way that they are now got me on a whole journey of thinking about equity and learning and connecting with Crystal, which has been so fun to do some training, a couple of training workshops together with different clients all around the country. And yeah, we we keep learning from each other. So it's really a great partnership and we'll tell you more. Amazing. Could we start with the problem? Like what was sort of bubbling up with your students or what were the questions that both of you were getting asked around board development, around equity, diversity, inclusion that helped you recognize, okay, there is this very specific thing that we need to tackle together. Well, I will say that when people reach out to us, normally it's because there's something going on. Something that's not good. And so we know going in that there could be some challenges. And so we normally spend the first couple of conversations talking to whoever it is, the board chair, the executive director, about what's going on with the nonprofit. And sometimes they're transparent and forthcoming in the first two conversations, and sometimes they're not, right? But usually Mm -hmm. they will come and say, we really feel like we need to diversify our board or we need to change our culture. We realize that there is a trend now to really push equity and diversity, and we want to learn more about that. And so that's kind of the gist of what we get. And then when we start talking to them, we start asking them about what is your definition of diversity and what is your definition of equity? And of course, we get all these random answers. Then we, after we talk to them and maybe talk to some of the other board members, we learn there are some additional problems that might be at the root of why they're calling us. So I'm going to let Renee expand. Some organizations are seeing the need to have diverse people on their board, so people of different racial backgrounds, LGBTQ, disability. But after that, sometimes what's happening is these people come on the boards and they do not feel a sense of belonging. There is very much like, well, you're on our board. Now let's just go with business as usual. So that's really the difference between diversity, which is really just having diverse people in the room or really shifting towards that culture change. So as Crystal mentions, Sometimes boards have done this diversity step, but then there's a challenge that comes up in terms of shifting the thinking of everyone on the board and specifically for historically white-led boards, really understanding that we need to build anti-racist society, that we don't yet have that. And it, it is a matter of talking about power for some of the white people of stepping back and doing more listening. So There's some new practices that need to be integrated into boards in order to be successful in this work. Okay, can we get super explicit? Just because one of the things that I think is helpful on this show is when nonprofit leaders and fundraisers hear things and they're like, okay, I'm not the only one experiencing that, or that has felt like a problem, but I haven't been able to put a name to it, or I haven't known if that was normal. So Crystal, when you started talking, you said they're experiencing a problem or that they've come to us with. Can you give us some like really concrete examples of what those are? So Renee and I had a client in California and they worked with women, predominantly Black women. And they came to us and said that there was some tension on the board and that they felt like they needed some support in helping to decipher through some of this language. They knew some terms, but they weren't sure how to implement. They weren't sure how to talk to one another. They were just having this bickering going on. 
And so we learned later after interviewing a couple board members and staff, because that's what we do when we get a client. We do a little background digging. So we call it discovery. And we interview board members. We interview staff. Sometimes we'll do a survey. And we learned later that there had been kind of this mass exodus from four women of color on the board who were not feeling heard by the board chair and some other members. And they felt disrespected and they just felt like this racism thing was just pervasive. And they bounced off the board. Now, they didn't tell us that when we first spoke with them. They told us there was some tension, but they didn't give us some of the specifics around that tension. And so we had to learn that later on. And so we learned that there was a disconnect. There was a disconnect with the executive director who was not involved in this work at all. And there was a disconnect with the board chair who just could not seem to communicate with the board members. He was kind of clueless as to why they were so upset. And so I'm going to let Renee take over and share a little bit more about this client. First of all, this is not a one-time training. This is a series of conversations. And the reason is because this is about building trust over time. So we have the first conversation that Crystal leads is about learning about bias and understanding different people's experiences in the world and based on race and racism. Then the next conversation that we do, we ask people to think about their race stories and we share what we learned about race, which is really different and the messages that we got growing up. And then we encourage participants to do that also. And in small groups and and just listen to one another in a very non-judgmental, active listening type of way. And when we did that, everyone what came back from their breakout rooms, I would say astonished, surprised, hearing information that they didn't expect, especially some of the white people on the board started to be more aware of their own privilege. So even someone who might say, oh, I grew up poor. And so I had to fight for my way as they started hearing about some the experiences of some other people who had experienced racism. Then all of a sudden it was like, wow, okay, I, I have some privilege that I never even accounted for up to this moment. And that's a huge deal, Mallory, because we had some resistors, particularly as we started talking about white supremacy culture. That really makes people nervous. When we start talking about the characteristics of white supremacy culture, people get very defensive and sometimes they'll check out. And so that we had this evolution where people came around after having had those resistors. Renee saw and I saw that as a pivotal moment and for this board to see that maybe the way that they saw things before was biased. And we talk about the lenses for which we look through and often it's very different. And so it's for them to be able to shift their lens and say, OK, well, maybe the way I've seen things is kind of like a mindset shift of what you have believed your whole life. It's like now for those of us who are trying to diet, you know, if you've been eating potato chips your whole life and now someone tell you you can't eat potato chips, you're like, what? So, yeah, doing something that you've been doing over and over or believing over and over. Now someone is saying, wait a minute, maybe there's another way to think about this or to see this can sometimes be a challenge for people. But when you see that light bulb come on, you realize, aha, I think they got it. And I will say, just to add on to that, one of the things that we sometimes are hearing in some of these workshops is I treat everybody really nicely. I don't see race. Why do we have to talk about this? I treat everybody fairly. But what you need to know is that research has shown that if you are able to talk about race or disability or whatever identities people might have that are outside of power, and you're able to have an open, caring, affirmative conversation about people's differences, 
people feel more seen. And for organizations, if this is the mission of your organization to work with black or brown people, then you need to be able to talk about who you're serving and what kind of outcomes you're having and who you need to serve and who needs to be on the board to be part of those conversations. So this is really to say like, well, we're too polite to talk about this. We're beyond that at at this point. Yeah. I'm curious, the piece that you said, Crystal, around the discomfort, the resistance that comes up for folks. And this is something I think about a lot in my work, the ways in which our nervous system gets activated and then can lead to ultimately, if we stay in a chronic stress state, it can lead to that shutdown, that checkout, that sort of like numbing. And I'm curious, like, how do you all set expectations around the fact that this is going to get uncomfortable to a certain extent? And how do we sort of set the expectations that in those moments, how do we stay in it and stay present and walk through that discomfort together? I was just having a conversation with somebody about community-centric fundraising, And they were sort of saying that those concepts often get adopted until there is a moment of significant discomfort. And then there isn't the awareness around like, yeah, this is going to be uncomfortable at moments to be in the unknown even of using a different methodology. And so I'm just curious how you all sort of navigate that and walk folks through that. So Renee and I usually start our our presentations and our training off with group agreements. And so we set the tone for things that are acceptable and not acceptable. In other words, this is a judgment-free zone, or we want you to be a great listener and not a great knower. Be respectful of other people's experiences, even if they're not your own. And so we have five, eight bullets on a slide where we go over these agreements. And then we ask, because we may miss some, there are lots, right? So when we ask those people who are in the room, if we've missed something that they would like to add. So if someone was deaf and they wanted people to slow down or they want to be able to read people's lips, like whatever it is, we ask people to contribute to those agreements to make sure that we're all in agreement. And then we ask people to raise your hand or to somehow show us that you've read these agreements, you understand them, and you agree to adhere to them during this presentation. We say things like there's an opportunity to fumble, but responsibility to repair. So you might say something that might be kind of a, But we expect once we've made that clear to you that it's a ugh, that you then have a responsibility to repair it. So those are the things that we do. We tell them it's going to be uncomfortable. And one of the things I tell people is you can't change without some discomfort. However, we do want you to practice self-care. So if you're so uncomfortable that you're feeling a panic attack or something coming, we do tell you to turn your computer off, go grab some water, go stand outside and get some fresh air, use the restroom, whatever you need to do so that you can be fully present. Because if you're panicking, your heart is palpitating, you can't be fully present to hear what we're talking about. So we do want you to practice some self-care, but we want you to know in advance that you might feel a little uncomfortable. I have two responses to that. (laughs) One is a personal and one is a team response. So personally, one of the things that I've been reflecting on recently is most people run away from uncomfortable conversations. I actually run towards them. (laughs) So (laughs) it's kind of a weird quality, but it does help for facilitation and having those really hard conversations. The reason is because I believe that the thing that we don't want to talk about is actually something where there's a lot of energy. And so by opening that up and by trusting that you can get through it, 
you're going to take all that energy of like, oh, I'm scared to say the wrong thing. Oh, I really don't know what I think. Oh, I feel like I'm ignorant, whatever it is. And you're going to move that in a direction of getting the group where it needs to go. The other response I would say is it's really lovely to work as a cross-race team and to model this. And I think Crystal and I just try to be really honest with one another and talk about what's going on. And sometimes things have happened with clients that have been inequitable. And what are we going to do about that? And as a team or talking about how some different parts of an organization's mission and how we each experience them. So our own honesty with each other, I think, goes outward to the group also. And we don't always agree. We have different backgrounds and two different ways of thinking and seeing the world, but we respect each other's ways. And sometimes we debate, we have good debate back and forth. Renee has supported me in some times where I felt some racial bias in working with some of our clients that maybe she's not feeling. And she has supported me in my feelings. And that has been really helpful to have someone that you can say, you're like, I'm really angry right now about what they said or what they did. And she understands that and she sees it and she says, wow, you know, that, that has not been my experience, but I can see how it's hurting you. And I'm sorry about that. I see how it's harmful. And I'm sorry about that. So having her to be able to share those kinds of feelings with have been really helpful. And I think you can see it in the way that we work together. Yeah. Okay, this might be a totally impossible question to answer, but I'm curious, I'm going to ask it anyway, which is when I think about some of the organizations that it sounds like have come to you where there has been a problem for a long time that maybe has been festering. So likely there's been a pretty unsafe environment, at least for a particular groups of people inside of an environment. What does it look like from like a timeline and repair perspective to create, and I don't mean psychological safety in the term, but I mean psychological safety in the bodies of the staff and board members. Like, what does it really look like to create safety from an environment that was historically and for a long period of time unsafe? I will say that one of the things that we do as part of this process is caucus meetings. We usually do if we have a big enough group. And so I will meet with the white caucus. Crystal will meet with the black indigenous people of color caucus. And that is a way for the white people to say, yes, we are committed to being anti-racist. And here are some challenges that have come up on the board. And to have an internal conversation is also a way for, well, Crystal could talk about the BIPOC caucus. (laughs) But yes, and I just want to really affirm that that we do have people who are BIPOC who will come and say, tired of talking about this, man, I just want to get work done. And everyone's looking at me and saying, can you tell us what racism is? And I'm just tired of that. So it's like, how do we not reproduce that in our work? Yeah. And usually when uh, I remember one instance where we did a caucus and all the Black folks and folks of color gathered in a separate space before I can even close the door and sit down to say, okay, well, let they started like, oh my God, I'm so glad we have the opportunity to talk to you. <laughs> I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They were like bursting at the seams because they had not ever been in a position where they were all together to kind of talk about what they had been experiencing and feeling on this board. And they were anxious to get it out and they were angry. So I had a little agenda prepared. I had to throw the agenda out the window. I was like, okay, let's just talk. Let's just kick it. And we gave each other space so that we could all talk. And you know, what's interesting about my caucus too, is that 
My caucus is not monolithic. So I have Black folks, I have Asian folks, I have this. When you say people of color, as if we're all lumped into one big group, I have Hispanics, I have Mexicans, I have. And so we're not all the same and we don't all believe the same thing. One of the things that we do have in common is that we've been shut out. And so that's where we start. Some of us to more extent than the others. Some groups are real quiet. You know, often, you know, folks from Asian descent don't say a whole lot. And when I press them and say, how do you feel about what's going on? And they said, invisible, because they feel like it's always black, white. And our story is not told. You know, we have our own issues. We have our own ways that we've been brought up. Issues, how we treated in this country. So it's an interesting experience, but we allow people. So I just told everybody like to breathe for a second. Let's just stop and take one or two deep breaths. And let's just kind of center ourselves and relax because everybody was so hyped. And I was like, we cannot get anywhere if everyone is so hyped. So we have to just center back to where we need to be in order for us to be able to think coherently and to be able to share with one another. And so sometimes it takes a moment to get people who are like riled up to get back to the center. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. But Mallory, I was just going to say, I'm really glad that you mentioned the idea that this is in our bodies. We definitely believe that. I think early on, someone just said, can you do a, a report and then deliver the report? And we're like, no, this is something that we all, and we talk about Resma Menekem and his work and the impact on the impact of racism on white bodies and on black bodies. And the idea that this is trauma that we're, if we want to change we actually need to realize that it's often on the subconscious level. Well, I've been studying recently a lot about the different parts of the brain that come online during different types of activities. And so like when we're intellectualizing something or we're making decisions about something in our like prefrontal cortex, right? So we're designing a board. That is a very different part of our brain that is coming online for that than the parts of our brain that come online that actually relate much more to our stress hormones and trigger our stress hormones when we're actually in the activity that we designed before. And so I think there's a lot of times where we can say, oh, we all agreed to that thing. And then we get up to the moment of doing the thing. And all of a sudden there's all this resistance. There's all this activation. There are all these things resurfacing. And it's like, yeah, everyone did agree in their prefrontal cortex that this was a good idea. But now that we're here doing the thing, different parts of our brains and bodies are coming online. And so there are these new reactions, responses, experiences. And so that's why I think when I hear psychological safety talked about in this like cognitive only sense, I'm like, that's not where safety lives. It lives in our bodies. And so if we are not being honest about how safe we actually 
feel in moments and we don't have space to flesh that out. I feel like we're at this very kind of like surface level experience. You know, one of the things that I'm wondering about related what both of you were saying before, Renee, you were talking about being careful and designing to not tokenize or isolate people of color and organizations who perhaps have been pinpointed to answer a lot of questions or do a lot of work on behalf of the organization. I'm curious, I feel like over the last few years, a lot of nonprofits and boards for the first time were like, whoa, 100% of our board is white. And now maybe over the last few years, they have one person of color or two people of color on their board. And I'm curious about in the last example, you were giving an example of a board where there were enough people to be in a white caucus and be in a BIPOC caucus. But can this work be done in an environment in a safe way where there really is one person of color? And tell us a little bit about how that changes the approach or how you all facilitate. I think both of us recommend if you are going to bring new people on the board that you do bring a cohort of people with similar identity. And actually, I wrote a a blog post about this. I think that it just feels a lot more affirming for people to come on the board. And I shared the story in my blog post about an organization that had done that, that this was the Pacific Crest Trail Association and that had had a historically white board and then spent a year doing board recruitment and recruited, I think, four or five new board members who were people of color. And they sent out a press release. It was really exciting. You know, they said representation matters. Nature belongs to everybody. The trails belong to everybody. And we realized we were not on it before and we're trying to do better work. So it was a really positive statement about their values. And I think that's the way things should go from the conversations that Crystal and I have had with that only person, whatever their identity is, it's very stressful. And you have to have really strong armor. Talk about discomfort. Crystal, what do you say? I totally agree. And I think sometimes people feel like maybe my voice is not going to be heard. They may retreat. You know, they may not feel comfortable speaking up. So they're just kind of there and just kind of feel like what I say is not going to be heard or respected anyway, so I won't say anything. What I like about what Renee's example just showed was the transparency of the organization, right? And so I think people can be forgiving if you are transparent enough to say, we had an awakening. (laughs) We talk about boards being in slumber, right? But we had an awakening that we're not doing a good job in this area and we have been complicit. And so we know that we have to make change. And so I think when you come to folks that you're wanting to invite on your board and you share that with them and say, listen, I know we're at risk for, for seemingly tokenizing you, but we really do think you're qualified to be on this board. You bring a wealth of skill sets and information that we need. It helps that you're a person of color. We need more of people who look like you on our board. And so we're trying our best to make this change happen. And so if you would just give us a chance, I think if you just come at them like that and just share with them, you realize that you're flawed and you've not made some good decisions in the past, but now you're trying to do better. Most people would be like, I'm glad that they came to me in that way. And yes, I will be the first person knowing that you're going to continue to recruit maybe two or three more right after me. Okay, that's really helpful advice. Can I take us back to the story you were telling at the very beginning again around this tension that had been building for a long time that led to this mass exodus? I'm curious about what some early signs might be. It sounds like a lot of folks come to you all when there has been either a big event or a certain 
climax to the tension. But I'm wondering for organizations, like how can they notice things earlier or what would be some early warning signs that maybe they should do this work before things get really bad? Well, in this particular case, there have been some micro and macro aggressions before the mass exodus happened. I know that they had some varying beliefs about who their donors should be. There were some folks who thought that they should divest from working with certain companies that had a history of racism. And so I know that there were some bickerings and some disagreements before this burst. And I think it just kind of festered and festered and festered. And the women who left felt like they were not being heard. They were not being respected. And quite frankly, when we first talked to the board chair about this, he was very dismissive about it. He didn't seem as alarmed as Renee and I were to hear that you had four Black women or it might have been Hispanic women as well, just march off the board all at one time. That's problematic. And he didn't see it as such. And so he was one of the resistors. And before that experience ended, he came around and admitted that he had privilege because he was one of the ones that were saying, you know, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. You know, my family struggled too. And my dad worked hard, you know, all that. But before the experience ended, he came around and realized that even with all of that, he still had certain privileges that many folks were not afforded. That was an aha moment for him. I have been speaking and writing about a three-part framework for looking at boards and how well they're doing. And it's really, uh, you can find it on my blog too, but formal practices, informal practices, and equity. And we're working with a client now, and what we're looking at is how many of those are in place. So do you have those term limits? And then are you doing yearly or every other yearly board assessment? that asks about board culture and about equity. There are things that boards can do proactively as you're asking about to really run the board or governance team, whatever you want to call it, in a good way. Like asking for a wide variety of voices. I think that really matters. We've had situations, I remember a while back where I, I met with a white man and I said, "Do is there belonging on your board? And we were it's a prospective client. He said, well, of course, my three friends really, really feel a sense of belonging. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, how many people did you ask? You got to get enough input. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a new world for some people who are used to this top-down way of operating. But everything we know about organizations is what comes out is a lot better when you get a variety of perspectives and yet people really feel heard and with what they have to share. You know, Mallory, one of the things I talk about is doing your own work and reflection as an individual, either before or while you're working with your board. Because I, in, in my last one of my clients, I did a DEI audit and I interviewed some of their board members and I was asking the question, do you feel a personal responsibility to change the landscape of the work that you do through DEI lens? And I had one person say, I don't feel like it's my responsibility at all. Some people, you know, if they can't get in or if they can't have access, that's not my problem. I mean, he was just really quite frank about it. He was like, this DEI stuff is hijacking the work that we're trying to do on the board. This is mission creep. I don't understand why we're having this conversation, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, so I just listened. I mean, he was honest and he was candid, but that is really how he felt. Like, why are we even talking about this? This has nothing to do with our mission. Like, why are we even talking about this? I didn't come on this board to talk about this stuff. And so there are a lot of people who feel that way. And when we get that, Some of the things that we try to do are connected to their mission, get people to zoom back and say, so we're working with this health organization. This is a community that 
has 50% white, 50% black, and yet somehow the organization is only serving maybe 10% people of color or 10 to 20%. Something isn't working in the way that this is all. And so it's really zooming back and saying, well, who are you serving and what is your mission? And part of what we encourage people to do is be okay with change. And so if someone is just saying, I like things the way they used to be, then that's why you have the term limits. (laughs) (laughs) That's where you can say like, all right, we're going in this direction. The world is changing. If you don't want to come, that's all right. Right. You know, and as a board, you know, we talk about values a lot. As a board, you have to make some decisions because one of our the one of the clients that we worked with when we started really delving in, a lot of the white men stopped coming to our training. And so we talked to the board about what are you going to do about that? Like, is that okay for people to just opt out? I'm just not going to even come. I'm not in- interested in this. And so as a board, are you going to put some parameters around? This is what we expect of people. This is the direction that we're moving. And if you want to stay on this board, you need to get on the train. And they said that they were. They said that they were going to address those people who stopped coming because they felt uncomfortable or they didn't want to talk about it. And Sherry, this is what we're doing now. And if you can't get with this program, then maybe this is not the right board for you. And sometimes you're going to lose some folks, donors, volunteers, board members, staff people. And if you're really serious about this, if you're really committed, you're going to have to be willing to eat those losses. I'm really glad that you said that. I really appreciate you saying that. Is there anything that I'm not asking you both that I should be asking you? What we do is we don't promise people that as a result of working with us for three to six months, that after the six month and one day, everyone's going to be completely changed. (laughs) And so what we do say to them is that this is long time work. And so what Renee and I do is kind of set you on the path. And then before we leave, we try to sit down with the board. We like to do that last session. We've been doing our sessions virtually. When we can come together in person, we do. So I flew out to California with one of our clients on the last session, and we met with them in person, which was really good because we got a chance to be in the room and have eyeball-to-eyeball contact, which was really good. But we really kind of just set the tone and then work with them to create goals, attainable, realistic goals that they can work on, that they come up with. Renee and I don't give them these goals. They come up with these goals. These are the three things because you can't you can't climb Mount Everest, right? These are the three things that we're going to do for the rest of 2023. And this is when we're going to do them. This is who's responsible for doing them. These are the timelines or benchmarks. And then this is what success looks like when it's over so that we'll know that we've reached this goal. So, and then, you know, we'll revisit them in a few months to see how they're doing against those goals. But we don't promise that this work is overnight and that you're going to magically be a wholly different person. We hope that there's some transition in the way that you're thinking, in the way that you're feeling, in the way that you're looking at the work. But we do say this is ongoing, long-term work and investing in your own personal growth and exploration as you move through it. The thing that has come up again and again is at this time, this work is countercultural. Because sadly, we are often living in communities that are becoming more segregated. And so we do hear from boards where people say, I would like to invite some people who from different racial backgrounds onto this board for this white led board, but I don't know anyone. And so this process of connecting, bridging across race, across disability, across sexual gender identity is an active process. We need to just be aware of that. Sadly, I don't know that our culture encourages it enough, but I do think it's like, how do we hold this vision where people of all different backgrounds can thrive? 
And that's really it. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like it sets them on a path both to complete the trajectory of some work together that you sort of started them on, but also to change the way they hold certain practices or processes or things forever, that it is changing the way that they're doing something so that this becomes integrated into what board leadership looks like, which I really appreciate. Thank you both so much for this conversation today, for sharing all of your wisdom with us. I will make sure that there are links below to learn directly about this, the training program that you do together, as well as both of your individual practices so folks can follow along and learn more about you. I'm so grateful for the time we got to spend together. Thank you, Mallory. It's been wonderful being here. Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Okay, there is so much inside this episode, but here are the top things that I am double-clicking on right now. Number one, prioritizing building a culture of equity and diversity within your nonprofit involves implementing new practices and approaches, such as active listening and open, caring conversations about race and other identities. It is not a box you can check without doing the work. Number two, Practice self-care during uncomfortable conversations and know that it's okay to take a break if needed, but also know that it will likely get uncomfortable and that's okay. So prepare yourself. Number three, use group agreements to set the tone for respectful and judgment-free conversations and model honesty and respect in collaborations to create a positive impact on the whole group. Number four, When you're faced with resistance or discomfort, remember that it's an opportunity to learn and grow. And when you make a mistake, which you likely will because you're in new territory and learning, you have an opportunity to move through it with accountability towards repair. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Crystal and Renee and our amazing sponsors, Give Butter. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.